morning. We're going to open our Bibles to Psalm 120. Let's turn our attention once more to the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Shir Hama'alot, a song of going ups, or likewise a psalm of degrees. They begin at Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them don't name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. The common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during the three pilgrimage festivals. Pesach, or Passover, which celebrated God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the giving of the law, and Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These festivals were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to travel to Jerusalem to make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and later the Temple of Solomon. You can find the command in Deuteronomy 16.16. And you will remember that Jerusalem stands on a hill, or rather a cluster of hills, surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. But Jerusalem stands apart. Because it is completely surrounded by deep valleys, so however one approaches the city, he'll be going up or ascending. This made it a very defensible fortress, and it also led to the common phrase, going up to Jerusalem. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And you will remember, some scholars have suggested, there may have been a ritual singing of these songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount, from the Valley of Hinnom, which lies between between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The temple had several gates, but the one on this route seems to be a common approach to the city and the temple. The gate was long ago sealed with stone, but there are still 15 ancient steps there leading up to the ancient wall. So we imagine together the Israelite pilgrims pausing out there in the dust and the sun and singing their 15 Shirot Hama'alot, all together as a set. Since I only speak, as Damon mentioned, a few times a year, we make those, these are uh, pilgrimage festivals and read the Psalms of Ascent aloud together. Hopefully these words are starting to feel familiar. Listen for the songs we've studied together before and try to remember their lessons. Let's all stand. Keep in mind that image of coming up from the Valley of Hinnom and standing at the base of the hillside below the city gate Mm -hmm. with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress and preparing to ascend to the temple. As before, we'll read them in order, starting with 120, and when each reader finishes, the next can go right ahead and start. Shall I have your assignments? In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek peace.
your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Thanks, you may be seated. Listening once again to these words, we may notice once more that individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. And so we look to them to help us understand how we also may go about approaching God. This is my seventh psalm out of the 15 and that we've studied together since the spring of 2014. So uh, at this rate, we'll be done about the time uh, Adley gets into middle school. Um, First, we studied Psalm 124. This song reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezers of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123. We saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, a right perspective toward his nature and position in in this situation, understanding who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation. We immersed ourselves in Psalm 130 and learned to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood his consistent nature, that he is just, that we are guilty, and that he offers us redemption. We examined Psalm 125 and saw that we should come to God with unshaken trust, that God holds the patent on truth, and righteousness, and it has no need of innovation. That such a stance will not be popular and certainly won't be mainstream. That the world will not love us for trusting God and standing unmovable in the face of wickedness. Indeed, Jesus himself warned us that we would be hated if we follow him. Then we cuddled up with Psalm 131. It showed us that we come to God with submitted selves, having received and accepted his discipline, 
like a weaned child. And last time, more than a year ago, on the day before Ransom was born, we discussed Psalm 128 and saw that we also come to God walking in his ways. Our human freedom or common grace includes the opportunity to make choices that matter and affect our lives and the lives of others, up to and including the choice to be one of those who fear God and beyond that to also walk in his ways. So we must be both doers and trusters. We must set our wills to hold the Lord in reverent awe, set our bodies, hearts, and minds to make his ways our ways. And we must trust that he will honor our efforts and handle all the myriad things that fall beyond our comparably tiny ability to control. Today, in Psalm 127, we'll see that we must come before God seeking our security in him. Psalm 127 has some relationship to 128, which we studied last time. Both poems contain ideas about doing, acting, choosing. But as we'll see, I think there is an important difference in their focus. Where Psalm 128 encourages us to conform the actions and choices of our lives to the precepts set out by God and to trust him for what we cannot control, Psalm 127 balances that responsibility by pointing out just how little control we actually have. But then again, there may be a yet deeper thought that we can draw from this poem. Psalm 127, as usual, as usual I'll read from the Hebrew-English Bible. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates. Believe it or not, there is some controversy about the interpretation of this psalm. One scholar famously called verse 2 the most difficult translation problem in the whole book of Psalms. Now, usually I don't mention the interpretations of others, sticking rather to the text itself as best I can translate and understand it. But I'll make a brief exception here for two reasons. One, this psalm is very commonly quoted out of context. And based on my study of the scripture, I believe that the majority of the stock interpretations are probably wrong. Some wildly and some only mildly, but at best the common applications of Psalm 127 err in their focus. I've variously seen Psalm 127 used to forbid staying up or eating too late, to condemn workaholics, to promote the raising of large families, and even to ban contraception. Among scholars, it is very common to add words to verse 2, and then to argue strenuously about which words to add and how they should affect the interpretation, usually in defense of one of the prescriptions I just mentioned. And nearly everyone who discusses Psalm 127 treats it as though it's really two poems that are joined together by mere happenstance. But I actually do not think this psalm is difficult to understand if we begin, as we have in the past, with the idea that to understand a poem in its purpose and its message, we must begin by understanding its poetry. In Psalm 127, I believe there is perhaps, I believe this is perhaps more important than it was in any other psalm we've studied in the series, and that this simple shift of perspective quickly resolves the translation debates and the arguments and the adding of words. <clears throat> of words. You'll see, we will see that this is one poem unified by established patterns of Hebrew poetry, and that it is perhaps trying to tell us something beyond the surface level. These songs, you will remember, rise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew. And this is part of what sets psalms apart from other kinds of scripture. Hebrew poetry works with a set of tools that is somewhat different from Western poetry, which relies on rhyme schemes and patterns, syllables and accents. By contrast, Hebrew poetry deals mainly in metaphor, simile, and various kinds of repetition, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds. Key words play a large part, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery. Comparison and contrast play their part as well, and Psalm 127 makes use of most, if not all, of these devices. The most important thing to look at when we read Hebrew poetry is the interaction. The Hebrew language lacks that strict subject-verb-object forms that we find in English. Words and phrases instead interplay with each other. 
So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. This will be especially important, I think, in understanding Psalm 127. As a result, I'll ask you to bear with me as we take a closer-than-usual look at the poetry aspect of the psalm, with a little translation thrown in along the way. It's going to be all poetry today, not so many movie quotes. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us is the stanza. If we look at our poem, we can pretty quickly break it into two sections. Verses 1 and 2 is stanza 1, verses 3, 4, and 5 for stanza 2. Stanza 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Since repetition is the most common tool in Hebrew poetry, we look first for the repeated words, and we see that stanza one can also be divided into sections, using the repetition. Verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. This is a couplet, or a two-line section, and it gives us a perfect example of parallelism, which we've discussed before, a special kind of repetition where each line starts with the same words, and then the rest of the line, as in this case, often patterns um, itself so that they echo one another. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord, echo, uh, lest the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's always good to pay special attention to the beginning of a Hebrew poem, because in Hebrew, the most important idea often comes first. In English, we often think like Sherlock Holmes. We take all of the supporting details and work our way up to the crux of the matter at the end of the sentence or the paragraph or even the whole book or written work. In fact, I'm using that pattern of discourse right now, but not so in Hebrew. Often when a Hebrew poet wants to emphasize something, he places it at the beginning of the poem, at the beginning of the section or the line. And then, um, more often than not, repeats it in a slight variation just to make sure we didn't miss it. What follows interacts with and expounds upon that thought. So here at the beginning of our poem, we find this couplet, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now there are three aspects of these first two lines that are invisible in English. One is the order of the words in Hebrew. Another is the gender of the words. And the third is the sound of the words. The order, if rendered more precisely but less grammatically, would be something like, if the Lord not builds the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord not guards the city, vainly stays awake the watchman. In this order, we see more clearly the pattern and therefore the emphasis on the words, if the Lord and vainly. Those will be key to our understanding of the whole poem. Now you'll remember that in Hebrew tradition, a complete image must include both genders, and a, and a harmonious thought must demonstrate order and harmony between the genders. We have seen this uh, before, especially in Psalm 123. One way to include both genders is by choosing gendered words. Hebrew, like many languages, uh, but not English, classifies its words as either masculine or feminine. By choosing words with certain genders, the poet can create another kind of pattern to guide the reader in certain directions. So it is in Psalm 127, verse 1. The word house is masculine. The word city, which appears in exactly the same place in the pattern, is feminine. This is very common in Hebrew poetry and indeed in other ancient poetry of the Middle East in the same time the psalmists were writing. So we understand that the psalmist wants to emphasize that this first thought is complete and harmonious, as though to say, here is a wise saying. Another way of emphasizing and guiding our thinking about the poem is the use of alliteration, the repetition of sounds. An English example would be The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I wandered, weak and weary. Once upon pondered, while weak, weary. Or a more obvious example, if less stoic, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Likewise, we see alliteration in Psalm 127, verse 1. The word vainly is pronounced shav. It appears in the middle of each line in verse 1. And if we uh, peek ahead a little, we see it at the very beginning of verse 2. So if we scan down the poem vertically in Hebrew, we would notice the pattern, shav, 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 vainly, vainly, vainly. Then if we looked more closely at the last phrase in verse 1, vainly stay awake the watch, stays awake the watchman, we would find it pronounced like this, shav, shakad, shomer. Alliteration like this is used once again to draw attention to certain words 
and to signify the completeness of the thought. If the Lord not builds the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly stays awake the watchman. Adding to the interaction, we might notice that the house is the basic unit of an ancient city. If you recall, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in Nehemiah 3, the men rebuilt the wall, each in front of his house. When the wall was complete, it enclosed all the houses in the city. So if the Lord builds not the unit, vainly they build. If the Lord guards not the whole, vainly they watch. Now looking ahead to verse 2, again we find the word vainly, and this time it is right in the first position. Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil. So we're expanding the idea, shav, that was highlighted by alliteration in the first verse. And on top of that, these three lines use a device called ellipsis. Ellipsis is, you know, the three dots that you use when you leave something out. So the beginning of the second and third line are understood to be an unstated repetition of the beginning of the first line. In other words, vainly you start early standing up, vainly you sit up late, vainly you eat the bread of toil. Ellipsis increases the focus on the word by leaving it out or implying it. If we remember that this is a song, then we might notice that dropping the repeated words allows us to say the line more quickly and increases the momentum. I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to get the picture that vanity is going to be an important part of this thing, or vainly. Perhaps we should not be surprised that the one psalm of a sense that is ascribed to Solomon has vainly as its key word. We'll most likely recall the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity and chasing after the wind. It's worth noting that Psalm 127 does not use the same word for vanity that appears in Ecclesiastes, though the two are synonyms. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon favors the word hebel, which means which comes from the word wind and carries along with it a sense of futility. The word shav in 127 of uh, Psalms uh, comes from a root meaning emptiness and carries a stronger sense of falsehood or deception. But both can uh, mean basically worthless. It may be that Solomon chose Shav in Psalm 127 because he wanted to create the alliteration in these first two verses, which we will see may have even further bearing on our understanding as we go along. In any case, we get the strong impression that all the work and labor described is fairly pointless and without, without the key ingredient of the Lord. Speaking of labor, one other word I want to pay a little attention to is in verse 2, is the one translated in the NIV as toiling, as in uh, toiling for food to eat, or sorrows in the Hebrew-English Bible, eating the bread of sorrows. The word is ha'at-sabim, and it's an interesting allusion that supports my argument for the unity of this psalm as one poem with one central point. See if you can guess which word in this verse comes from the same root as the word ha'at-sabim. Genesis 3.16 To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Both the word sorrow and the word pain come from the same root as ha'atzabim. The thing about allusion is that it only suggests, it doesn't tell directly, but considering the fact that the psalmist's audience spent an awful lot of time memorizing the first five books of the Bible, it may not be a coincidence that Solomon would choose the word for labor pains in this verse, given the subject of the second half of the poem. But more on that later. For now, we take a note. We take note that in support of the first verse, the psalmist tells us it is worthless to get up early in the morning, to sit up late into the night, and to consume the bread or products of our intense efforts. Now I want to get to the part of the psalm that seems to cause the most trouble to interpreters, the second half of verse 2. If the Lord builds not the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord guards not the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil. For so he gives his beloved sleep. This last line is the one that causes all the controversy. Those who want to emphasize the sovereignty of God aspect of, the verse, of verse 1, or possibly to lean toward a prosperity gospel, want to translate the line, for he gives to his beloved in their sleep. All that toil is worthless, they say, because God can prosper you while you snooze. The ones who lead toward the condemnation of workaholism, prohibitions of staying up late or partying, refer to, prefer to translate it, for he gives sleep to his beloved. 
In other words, get with the program. Sleep at sleep time, work at work time, eat at meal times. In either case, they seem to treat the second half of verse 2 as a kind of non sequitur that needs to be explained away. I don't think it is. As I read the poem, it flows smoothly from the first two verses and sets up the next three. But to understand how, we need to finish our poetic analysis of the poem. It's not surprising that this final phrase in verse 2 engendered a lot of attention. It appears that's exactly what the psalmist intended. When we look at verses 1 and 2 from a poetical standpoint, the last phrase definitely stands out. If the Lord builds not the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly the watchman stays awake. Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. What's missing in the last line? There's no repetition. The last line of verse 2 breaks the pattern, and it breaks it spectacularly. Verse 1 is a perfect, gender-balanced parallelism, a complete and harmonious thought. Verse 2 uses ellipsis to emphasize that thought through implied repetition, like an engine building up steam and then smack. Solomon breaks the pattern. Whenever you see a single unmatched line in Hebrew poetry, it stands out. Sometimes it comes at the beginning of a poem, or it stands out sometimes at the beginning and the end, or just at the end. We've seen that in other poems. As, or in this case, it can appear right in the middle. When an orphaned line appears in the middle of the poem, it generally signifies a change of direction. In this case, the change is so sudden and seemingly complete that many preachers have treated verses 3, 4, and 5 as though they are a totally different and separate poem, at best connected by the thin thematic thread of things that man might build, a house, a city, a family. But I believe the change is not nearly so complete as that, nor is it a thematic dissonant a thematically dissonant note from what comes before. For one thing, if you look back at verses 1 and 2, there's not just a lot of effort, there's also a lot of wakefulness. So the idea that the Lord gives his beloved sleep stands out in contrast, or even in answer to the watchman who stays awake in vain, or the one who rises early and stays up late, toiling away in vain. Also, the word sleep is pronounced shana which connects it to the string of alliterations in the first half of the psalm. Shav, meaning vainly, associated with the man striving in his own strength, is contrasted to Shana, meaning sleep or rest. The psalmist sets up a paradigm and then he breaks it, just as he sets up the pattern and then he breaks it. The word that starts this pattern-breaking phrase is perhaps the most ambiguous. The words he gives, his beloved, and sleep are quite straightforward, common words. The word translated in the Hebrew English Bible as for so is hard to pin down. The word is ken, which sounds like the Hebrew word for yes, but it it isn't quite. It does carry an idea of truthfulness. But it's a kind of multi-use preposition, hence the license taken in translating it. But the most common uses of the word is simply as so. The meaning of this preposition seems to be that whatever comes before it is leading to whatever comes after it. A logical conclusion, if you please. Akin to therefore, but not quite as direct. More like thus. Ken is often part of a construct with the word key, which means because. Because this, thus, that. This phrase then would not be intended as a non sequitur in a logical sense um, that needs to be explained away with extra words. It should be a smooth progression of thought. So how is thus he gives his beloved sleep a logical progression from if the Lord builds not the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly the watchman stays awake. Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil. If you'll come along with me a little further, perhaps it will become clear. To understand what we're progressing from, perhaps it would help uh, to consider what this sudden break in the pattern is transitioning toward. Look at verses... 3 through 5. Stanza 2. Behold, a heritage from the Lord are children. A reward is the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They, sh- they shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies at the gates. The first word we see after the little orphan line. Thank you. After our little orphan line broke up the parallelism party is Behold. We've seen this word in other Psalms of Ascent as well, meaning look or hey, check this out. In modern Hebrew, they use hine as an emphatic demand for attention. Yo, look here. Hey, you. 
Behold, another showstopper. And when it's in the middle of the thought, another word that suggests that what has gone before is connected to what comes after. What are we beholding? A heritage from the Lord, our children, a reward is the fruit of the womb. It's another parallelism, just like in verse 1. And if we check the genders of the words, we find that heritage is feminine and reward is masculine. Children is masculine and womb is feminine. So we have another harmoniously balanced image, the image of children as a gift. The word for heritage is fairly simply that, an inheritance, something that comes unearned. Reward might seem more ambiguous. In the modern era, we think of reward as transactional. Like, I was a good person, so I get to have children. Um, For one thing, uh, let's see. I think that misses the mark of what the psalmist is saying here. For one thing, we discussed last year in Psalm 128, the paradigm of follow God, get girl, have kids, that it's not supported by the realities of life any more than it is by the principles of Scripture. And here the word reward, while it does carry the idea of wages, also comes in the context of an ancient uh, national monarchy. We might think today, I went to work, I did my job, or seemed to, my employer owes me my wages, or I dieted all week, I deserve a reward. But this is modern thinking. In the ancient world, if you went into battle with the king and your army was victorious, he might distribute some of the plunder to you and the other soldiers. That's one of the senses of this word reward. That plunder might be called wages or a reward, but in the context of that power structure, the king did not owe these wages. Rather, he chose to give them. The source of the reward was the king, not yourself. Now we're narrowing on, in on the point of the psalm. He gives his beloved sleep. Children are a heritage and a reward. Looking at verse 3, we see the, parale- the parallelism matches the one in verse 1. But there's another echo that harkens back to the beginning of the psalm. The Lord. All caps. Now we'll recall from our earlier studies that when we see the Lord in all capital letters, it indicates the name of God, Hashem, the Tetragrammaton which we pronounce Yahweh, but whose original pronunciation is lost because generations of Jewish people refuse to say it lest they take the name of God in vain. This is the personal designation of God in his selfness, the creator, the originator of all things, the beginning, the Lord himself. So we're dealing once more with a personal interaction between God and man. Children come from the Lord personally. In verses 1, 2, and and 3, in fact, we see examples of the Lord interacting personally with the matters of human life in its specifics. But I think the connection between stanza 1 and stanza 2 goes further. Let's look at the rest of the poem. In verses 4 and 5, we see an expansion of the image from verse 3. Poetically, we call this an extended simile. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates. In Hebrew, these lines read much as they do in English, with the exception of the last line, of course, where old Solomon throws us another curveball. But let's start in verse 4 and the first half of verse 5. Like arrows in the hands of the warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. My dad, who is here today, always liked this verse because an Israelite quiver had five arrows and he had five kids. Kids, So he figured he was a pretty happy guy. I hope he continues to feel that way. But if we want to know what Solomon is trying to tell us here, we need to ask ourselves why the man is happy to have his quiver full of children. We find an answer, or at least a further expansion of the image, in the end of verse 5. The final couplet of the verse says, They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates. So the full stanza reads, Behold a heritage of the Lord, from the Lord our children. A reward is the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates. Once we get past the idea that having children is pretty great, we might notice that this image is quite military. It has that flavor to it, which might seem an odd choice to the modern ear. In the modern era, and in the industrialized West, we culturally treat children as one, an accessory to our lives, 
bringing fulfillment and meaning to our existence. Some social scientists even suggest that our urge to procreate comes from a latent desire to achieve immortality. Or two, as objects of our love and sacrifice and the organizing principle and motivation of our worldly efforts. In the ancient world, there's no doubt that parents loved their children and got pleasure from having them. But bearing children also carried a much greater dimension of utility. Children were a homegrown workforce in a time when all labor was manual. They were the home guard, like an ultra-local militia to be called upon to defend the home from invaders, bandits, or even wild animals. The division between family and military was much blurrier in an era before the invention of the nation-state. In support of this idea, I would point out that the word warrior in verse 4 and the word man in verse 5 are the same word. Beyond that, I would turn your attention to the curveball at the end of verse 5. Behold, a heritage from the Lord are children, a reward is the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The word speak in but shall speak with their enemies in the gate could also be translated as warn or threaten. The preeminent Hebrew scholar M. Dahud even made a compelling argument for translating it as they shall drive their enemies from the gate. In that context, we find an interesting new element to this poem. The word gate in the context of war can be considered a synonym for city. As in verse 1, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Here is a new kind of parallelism called distant parallelism. This poetic device usually employs synonyms and is used to direct our thoughts back to an earlier concept. In this case, it is an even more special concept called the envelope figure. Stay with me now. (laughs) I honestly believe this is the most important concept for understanding Psalm 127. The envelope figure is a repetition at the beginning and end of the poem that ties it into a complete whole. In Psalm 103, we find that the first line and the last line are the same. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So everything in in between expands upon and leads us back to the idea, bless the Lord, O my soul. In Psalm 1, we find a subtler version. The familiar first line starts, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the last line ends, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thus the idea of walking wickedness, so to speak, ties the poem together. In the same way, the word city and gate tie stanza 1 of Psalm 127 together with stanza 2. Here's the final evidence that this poem is one thought with one purpose. And this highlights the common mistake of the more traditional readings of this psalm. This is not a psalm about the individual images, but about a single cohesive thought. So what is the thought? We might suggest that it's the futility of human endeavor, contrasting the omnipotence of God with, uh, the, that, with that futility. Consider the key word vanity. Perhaps, as in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is pointing out to us that no matter what we choose to do, it will always be meaningless. But this is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Proverbs 6, 6-11 through 11 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having a chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And in 1 Timothy 4.15, to give a New Testament example, Paul says to Timothy regarding his work of teaching and preaching, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Indeed, Mike Greenholt showed us in his message a few years ago about Ecclesiastes that ultimate futility and human powerlessness is not even the message of that book. The point of Ecclesiastes is, the, is to point us to the, to the primacy of the Lord. So perhaps that's the message of Psalm 127. I think that it's part of the message. Certainly in verse 1 we should pay more attention to what God is doing than what man is doing. When we read, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The temptation, as Tom showed us last week in the parable of the laborers, might be to focus on our part in the story. 
they who labor building the city, the watchmen trying to stay awake. We ought, at, we ought rather to notice the primary actor, as Damon has taught us before. The Lord acts first, and we react. He created, he redeemed, he sustains us. There is certainly a message in the psalm about the necessity of God's involvement in our lives. But then, what is verse 5 all about? What about the envelope figure and the poem having one thought explored in two stanzas? Surely God is the prime actor in history. And as we saw in Psalm 128, he is not simply a player in the game. He created the game and has every right to require us to play by his rules. There are significant ramifications to believing Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if we're going to understand Psalm 127, we're going to have to ask ourselves, what binds stanza 1 together with stanza 2, other than the fact that Titus says something about Hebrew envelopes? We have four images. The building of a house, the guarding of a city, the wakeful striving, the military children. And smack in the middle we have the seeming non sequitur, thus he gives his beloved sleep. To understand this cunningly interwoven poem, we must ask ourselves what all these have in common. My answer in a word is this, security. Why does the builder labor? To create security. Why does the watchman stay awake? To create security. Why does the wakeful worker strive? To create security. Why does the warrior rejoice in his militia of progeny? They offer him security, driving their enemies from the gates. Security is the unspoken thread that connects all elements of the poem, even the seeming non sequitur in the middle. What can we do when we have security? In your house, in your city, your material needs, and the community of your family, then you can sleep. In this light, we can fully understand the poetic form of Psalm 127. If the Lord builds not the house, vainly they labor who build it. If the Lord guards not the city, vainly the watchman stays awake. Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of sorrows. Thus he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall drive their enemies from the gates. Stanza 1 offers a series of negative examples for seeking security without the help of God. Stanza 2 offers a positive example of achieving security with the help of God. And that little orphaned line in the middle offers the key to the paradigm. He gives his beloved sleep. After staying up half the night to finish the sermon, I can tell you that is a powerful image to me. The Lord, Hashem, is the only and ultimate source of our security. We must look to him, not to houses and cities, not to striving in short sleep. He alone will give us the, meaning, the means to our security. If the Lord builds the house, the laborers do not labor in vain. If the Lord guards the city, the watchman does not stay awake in vain. If we seek our security in him, our efforts at diligence may actually come to something. He loves us and gives us the opportunity to rest in his protection. Thus we can say with David in Psalm 18:2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And again in Psalm 27:1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And I want to make clear that the security that our Heavenly Father offers is not merely material. Jesus said in Matthew 11:28 through 30 Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Certainly, when we are worried or sick, careworn or suffering, we can find quiet in the hollow of his hand. But that temporal comfort arises from a transcendent truth. That the Lord Hashem, the name, the Almighty, clothed himself in skin and rags and suffered, died, and rose again so that he could say to us, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. It is not, li is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin, yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothes himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, (coughs) will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When we have fully ingested this message, we can come to God seeking our security in him. Then we'll be able to respond to him as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made from hands. Eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of poetry, of imagery and metaphor and all the other tools of creativity that you've placed in the minds of men. And thank you for your word so expertly wrought to drive our thoughts and our understanding to you. Thank you for this body of believers and the refuge it offers from the cares of life as we bear one another's burdens and lift each other up in prayer. And most of all, thank you for being in your own eternal, omnipotent, just, and heartbreakingly loving self the ultimate and the only true source of our security. Walk with us this week as we face the cares and trials that are the hallmarks of this life. Teach us to lay our burdens on you, that our yoke may be easy and our burden light. We pray in your name. Amen.